July the 25th, 2021, lecture discussion number 145 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. I had to start with this. Last uh, last week I had difficulty forming words, and I came out with uh, a word, ponder, and I had no idea where it came from. But I got a wonderful letter from Sherry, who spends most of her time in Illinois, but uh, she's always running from the authorities, so we don't really know where she'll be next. She said, I like new words. Ponder sounds to me like a blunder in your pondering, especially pertaining to theology. Let's say you were thinking animals go into annihilation. That would be a blunder in your pondering, and therefore a ponder. Now you've pondered into the tall grass. Anyway, I'm always looking forward to to new mysterious words. That was really fun, and I, I appreciate Sherry. She has given me a lot of laughs over the years. Okay, here we go. What began, let me take my glasses off because I can't see with them on and I can't see with them off. That's just the nature of my age. What began a while back is an investigation into the veil. This is the veil, if you want to think of it that way, that is separating the human physical realm, us, from the angelic spiritual realm. And that, of course, now it is naturally advanced. I should say really uh, quickly, there are many veils in Scripture, uh, many partitions. We are in this unseen, uh, those who do not see uh, blessed are those who have seen and believed, but even more blessed are those who have not seen. We're in the non-seen seen period, if you wish to think of it that way. Some would say dispensation. But we have a veil between life and death, for example. We cannot see the dead. We're not sure that they can see us. It's possible that they can. I get that question all the time. Can my family see me? And we don't know. It's possible. Certainly not outside the realm of, of, uh, of uh, the opportunity certainly would be there. I can understand why people would would think that it's it's certainly the case. But so we do have these veils. So this is the veil separating the human physical realm from the angelic spiritual realm. We cannot see them. They can see us. And it has now naturally advanced, as it should, into the animal kingdom. This discussion has to go to the animal kingdom at some point, and that's where we are now. Theologically speaking, this is the subject of the immortality of animal. Very controversial. I don't know why it is. It shouldn't be that controversial, but it is, in fact, controversial. All animals were given the breath of the spirit of life. Now, I'm repeating a little bit from the last two weeks, uh, lectures 143, 144. If you haven't heard those, try to find them. Those of you who are listening by shortwave radio, uh, 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 let me see. The best place to find us, those kind of lectures are where? On cliffside.org? Cliffside.org. Some of them are on Sermon Audio, but mostly cliffs, cliffside.org. So try to find those if you're interested in the subjects. The animals were given the breath of the spirit of life. Genesis 120, 121, 124, 128, 130, 715, 722, the Ruach, Nefesh, Shayat. All those animals that were given that, those animals are immortal. Immortality being defined as eternal existence. And eternal existence is not to be conflated with eternal life, as most people or some people are prone to do. Eternal, eternal life refers to the destination, uh, the new city of Jerusalem, Revelation 21, Revelation 22. Whereas the, the, the second death, Revelation 20, 14 through 15, is the Matthew 25, 41, Lake of Fire. So I have two destinations. One is called eternal life. The other is called eternal death. Both have to be eternal because of the immortality of human beings. And the Bible is declaratory about the human condition. All human beings have the breath of the spirit of life. Genesis 2, 7, Ecclesiastes 12, 7 makes it perfectly clear. All human beings have the breath of the spirit of life. Not in dispute. The breath of the spirit of life is a gift from God. It must come from him. He's the only one that has existence, and he 
gives existence. You have it has existence has to be given. Existence must come from existence. I say all the time. Infinity must come from infinity. Life must come from life. Existence must come from existence. Consciousness consciousness must come from consciousness. So again, the breath of the spirit of life is a gift from God, and that of course is our spirit, our soul, our mind, our consciousness, and it returns to Him who gave it when our bodies returned to the dust from which the bodies came. Ecclesiastes. Uh, 3.20. Included in this declarative is the universal resurrection of all humanity. And what do I mean by that? What I mean, Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for mankind to die once. Now that's a very interesting statement. And then the judgment. Die once and then the the judgment. Why Why is the once in there? Well, the once is very important because... Uh, there are two aspects to death. There's the first death and the second death. The judgment comes between the first, sec- the first death and the second death for those who have rejected the salvation, the blood of Christ, the open hand of salvation from Christ himself. So it is appointed, appointed once, I'm sorry, it is appointed for mankind to die once and then the judgment. And then, of course, comes life or death, as God defines it, which is destination again. Not existence. Revelation 20, 12, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18, Matthew 22, 31 through 33, Genesis 28, 12 through 13. And those are the most obvious references. So let me repeat it really quickly. It is appointed for mankind to die once, and then all are judged. Judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne. If you go to the judgment seat of Christ, you are saved and you will go to the new city of Jerusalem. If you go to the great white throne, then you have rejected the blood of Christ for salvation, his open hand of salvation. You have chosen the second death, which is the lake of fire, Matthew twenty-five forty-one. So hopefully that's clear. That'll be the first time. God is the God of the living, God of the living. He says that about himself all the time. The living God, Hebrews 10, 31, Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. There is no creature hidden from the sight of the living God. He can see them all. He intends to resurrect every single human being. For man is a living being, it's a, he's a living soul, again, Genesis 2-7. Every infant, every child, there is not one that will not be resurrected. Does that make sense? That's a double negative. Every human being, irrespective of the stage of life that human being has, will be resurrected because every single human being is a living being, a living soul. Again, Two cities, the city of the free or the lake of fire, the city of the living or the city of the dead. Two destinies, two directions, if you want to think of it that way, destinations. God is the one who defines the terms. And to repeat that, he defines what is life and what is death. You don't. I don't. We do not get to do that. To him, they are stations. They are places. And all of you already know this, and I'm just repeating it because I've got a new audience coming in and I have to kind of bring everybody to the same place. But you know it. 
However, the whole point of it is today is that it does lead someplace else, and that is through the immortality of animals. Once you understand that he's going to resurrect every single human being, you are now in the subject of the immortality of animals, whether you thought so or not, or wanted to be or not. Because, you see, if it's true that all of humanity is resurrected, and again, it's so stated repeatedly in the scriptures, that all human beings are resurrected. Then the most obvious of the obvious question uh, becomes what? Are all animals resurrected? I asked last week, how limited is the resurrection power of Christ? How many limits do you think Christ put on it? Are all animals resurrected is the next question that flows out of the resurrection of all human beings, which connects to the, uh, to the question that we asked last week as well. Are there any animals in the lake of fire? Because, again, there's life and death. And so I'll ask it this way. Do animals die as God defines death? But he defines death as a destination, as a station, as a place. Are there any animals who die according to his definition? Okay, that, that was a really good answer by both of them. Both of them went like this. <laughs> and when I do that, my head falls off. So I've got to be really careful. I'm just feeling in my fingers. <laughs> There's a leprosy joke there, but I won't do, I won't do it. <laughs> okay. If the animals are not in the lake of fire, then they are not dead as God des- describes death. Again, your choices are destinations, not existence. The implication of that, that seems like a little simple phrase that I made, but the implication of that is pretty spectacular. I will let you ponder it. Ponder it? No. If they are not in the lake of fire, where are they? What are the options? What remains? What's left? Okay, so... Last week, Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 22, we began to assess what Solomon and the Holy Spirit was trying to say. So I have the Holy Spirit and I have Solomon. Solomon has portions of wisdom that no other human being has ever been given. And the Holy Spirit is inspiring him. How, how much intelligence is in the book of Ecclesiastes? It's amazing. I will not discount, however, the controversy over Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 22. Though I believe the obvious is obvious. And that being God, I'm checking the time, just in I case. You're, okay, just checking to see where I'm, how many minutes I'm going per page is what I'm doing. Uh-huh. Trying to keep, just so you know, well, all of you who are wondering why I'm speeding up a little bit here, is because I have this shortwave broadcast control over us right now. I have to do it in 58 minutes. Am I right about that? Yes, 58 minutes. So I am really, really concerned about it and puts a little pressure. So I obviously speed up. Again, there is controversy over Ecclesiastes 3, 18, 22. I know that. It's okay. I believe the obvious is obvious about Ecclesiastes 3, 18, 22. That being that God wishes for the sons of Adam to see something that they obviously are not seeing. And that is that there is a sameness at death between two kingdoms, realms, dominions. The death of the body is what we're talking about here. A man and animal both have the same with respect to the death of the body. The breath of the spirit of life that returns to him that gave it 
and all go to the intermediate state. That is what's uh, uh, the one place, and all await resurrection. That's the message of Ecclesiastes 3.18.22. When the animal dies, the human dies. The human does not have, as the animal does, the human has no advantage, it has no priority, it has no supremacy, it has no jurisdiction. It dies exactly the same as the uh, animal does. That means everything is the same. Where the spirit goes is the same. We both know they have the same exact spirit. Again, Genesis just absolutely pounds that in. There are many people who say that the Bible hints at the salvation of animals. It doesn't hint at it. It pounds it. It screams it. And so when the animal and the man die, according to Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 22, the animal and the man go to the same place, the one place, the intermediate state, and they all await resurrection because everything is the same. And, and that's, again, the message of Ecclesiastes 3, 18, 22. Now, I, I know people disagree with that. They, they look at that and they get a completely opposite opinion, and it, it blows my mind. I should interject that it is common for this discussion to veer off into a discourse on the Septuagint and the Masoretic Text, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Vulgate, all of these different translations. And that's a worthy endeavor, something every Christian should have a familiarity with. If you don't know the difference between the Septuagint, the Masoretic, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Vulgate, then I'm going to urge you to start at least figuring out what's going on here. I'll give you a little bit of overview. <clears throat> but it's incredibly important when you get into these discussions, like this controversy I just mentioned in Ecclesiastes 3. So, again, every Christian should know this. It should be Christian 101. It should be the table of contents in your Christian manual. The LXX is what they call the Septuagint. So, the LXX or Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So, it's the, it's the Hebrew into the Greek. The Masoretic is a Hebrew authorized manuscript and that was compiled mostly between the 7th and 10th centuries. So there's two different translations. Now, your Bible that you have, the one that I have here, is most likely either Septuagint or Masoretic, but not always. The Dead Sea Scrolls, they're at least uh, 2,300 years old at most, maybe 2,000 at least. And we have them. And they're also a Hebrew-based document. And there's some Paleo-Hebrew in it, which has a... Phoenician uh, influence and Aramaic in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Vulgate is primarily the, the Catholic Church. It's a Latin translation of the Hebrew. So you have these different platforms, you want to think of them that way, but different references. And every single Bible that is available today has got some lineage from one of those different systems, if you were to think of them as systems. Needless to say, the theological community quarrels incessantly over which is the best translation. Uh, the, most, most, the one with the most accuracy is it the King James, the New King James, the NIV. Uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum used to say, Don't not, do not be NIV positive. <laughs> I haven't forgot that, even though that joke was, what, 30 years ago, 25 years ago? My goodness. I have gotten old. But again, the scholars, they are constantly fighting over which translation uh, is the most, has the most accuracy. And most of the time they use the Dead Sea Scrolls as the determining factor because why? 
it's the oldest one. And they feel like the oldest one would give us the most clarity, give us the most uh, connection to the ancient versions. The Bible is absolutely perfect, literally true, in its original form. What's the problem with that? We don't have the original form. We have replications of it. Well, how can you know that the Bible that you are reading is accurate? You can't. You have to, you have to do the best you can. You can figure it out. But it takes some ability to analyze. The best Bibles, in my opinion, are those that are translated word for word. So they took that word that's in the Hebrew and they made a word in the English or they made a word in the Spanish or German or whatever they made. They took the word and they put another word they thought was the same word and they put it right in their translation. That's fantastic. And those that are word for word, I believe, are, are the best. And the King James Version is a word for word translation. That's why it has so much how do I put it? It's, it? It is an incredibly powerful version. And it, everyone must have one. I do not ever put together a lecture without looking at the King James Version. Never have, never will. But I, can't, I also recognize it's difficult for people to understand. But most of the time I, when I quote a scripture that I think is in, in, in under conflict with other versions... I use the King James. I might modify it slightly. I might, I might intermingle the New King James with it just to make it more palatable. The Old Testament, as you know, is written in Hebrew. There's a problem with that. How many words are in the Hebrew language? Okay, you'll be surprised that there's not nearly as many as in the, in, in the English language. And the Hebrew words have, just like the English, more than one meaning. For example, they will translate the same word mind as heart, uh, soul, meat uh, will be translated into different. You will think meat means animal meat. It doesn't. So you have to know that the Hebrew words have more than one meaning. And, and that makes translations quite difficult, which is why you have to look at the context the context becomes critical as well as the connecting scriptures because what you do when you understand the Bible is interconnected in a way that is absolutely mathematically impossible and it replicates the human body and the ecology and the universe and all of the interconnectivity that's in the creation. When you realize that, then all you need to do is find all the connecting scriptures that connect to the particular scripture that you're trying to solve. Don't abandon the rule number one. Don't abandon sound doctrine that you know is sound because you are unable to resolve one verse or one word in one verse. Compare the other verses and take the propensity. All these verses say this. That's why I keep saying over and over again. Genesis 120, 121, 124, 128, 130, 722, 27, 715. All of those verses say animals that have ruach, nefesh, shaya. All of those animals are immortal. We're not, again, we, we don't have time to get into the insects and and, uh, you know, this is, again, vertebrates and invertebrates and, and exoskeletons and all of that stuff. I don't have time to do that. You're on your own there. Go ahead. I think I've given you enough. If I establish that Rah Nefesh Shaya is immortal, then you can figure it out from there. I hope. That's my, pl- my, my, my plan, at least. Again, accumulate all the, all the passages that you know connect to... Uh, 
For example, in this case, Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 22. And I gave you those in Genesis again, because they all connect to Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 22. So put those with Ecclesiastes. Now look at both of those together. Don't throw out all of Genesis, all those verses in Genesis that are nefesh. Don't throw them out because you cannot solve Genesis, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes 3.21. That, that is not how you approach scholarship. Uh, so you're looking for the prevailing truth. And if the truth is overwhelming uh, throughout Scripture, but seemingly contradicted in one sentence, then, then carefully study that one or two verses that, that are most likely in your translation not accurate which I have found all the time. I brought up as examples recently, 49.10 of Psalms and 49.20, So what you'll do is go back to the Hebrew, especially in the Old Testament. Of course, almost overwhelmingly in the Old Testament. Back to the Hebrew, you're going to go and you're going to search out individual words. How are those individual words used elsewhere in the Old Testament? We have the Nefesh Principle. With regard to Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 22, the Nefesh principle, it has, has absolute authority. It has command over Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 22. So once you have that Nefesh principle, then, then you are not going to fail in Ecclesiastes 3. Okay, I hope that made sense. It probably didn't. We ended the July 18, 2021 lecture, which was number 144, with the questions, Why do animals need no repentance? Do you remember that? Luke 15, 7. They need no repentance. Why? Why did God breathe his breath of the spirit of life into animals? We should know why he did it. we got two things. They don't need repentance, and he breathes his breath of life into them. Why? Answer the whys. Uh, subsequent to those two questions, the issue of the, is the issue of the test of uh, 3.18 of Ecclesiastes. That returns because there is a test here. He's testing man. Do you understand this sameness? Do you know what this means? Do you have any idea? And if you know what it means, do you know why it means what it means? There's a test here. Can you answer the test question co- correctly? All men. He's testing to see if all men can do it. How many can do it? What do you think in the church today? How are we doing? We, what's that word? I can't say it. We're not good at this. The church is a complete, oh, can't say that either. It's not good. The church has no idea what's going on in Ecclesiastes 3 as a general statement. And it's so important. The test is so critical, so crucial. Once you recognize that animals have been given the breath of the spirit of life to repeat the Ruah, Nefesh, Shaya, and will not be cast into eternal suffering and torment, once you recognize that, then these whys that I'm going to ask start to come out. You start to be able to figure out the whys. Why did God give immortality to the Nefesh, Ruah, Shaya? I said not in, that, in the correct order, but you can repeat the order. The words are all together. Why did he give immortality to them? Why do animals need no repentance? Repeating that. Why do animals die? Why do animals? Uh, why were animals sacrificed? That's all the same question. Those last three. Why do animals need no repentance? Why do animals die? Why were animals sacrificed? Same question. 
reworded. Short answer for those three is one word, innocent. They're all they're innocent. They did not sin. But there is a long answer. I gave you the short answer. I would say to you the long answer is far more has far more depth to it than the short answer, but it just gets you started that way. Next into the arena though, once we've got through those whys and we're starting to work those out, comes the order. We have an order here that's amazing. Who was created first biblically? Obviously the angels were. Who was second? The animals. Who was third? Adam, the man- mankind. So the order is angels, animals, mankind. What do you ask when you see something like that? Why? I, I have somewhat covered this subject a long time ago, that being the Genesis 1, 20 through 28. The living beings, the great sea animals in the waters, the birds, the living beings on the earth, the cattle, the creeping things, the beasts. I've looked at those orders and I've looked at those beings and I compared them to the cherubim and the seraphim, Ezekiel uh, 1, 10 through 14, and it's Isaiah 6, 2 through 4. In other words, what I'm saying about that is uh, you cannot... Seraphim, let me just say this. Seraphim, the Hebrew word for seraphim implies uh, burning and serpent. So the seraphim are a burning serpent, serpent or snake, if you want to think of them that way. And you see that at the bronze... Uh, the bronze uh, snake that uh, Moses held up in Numbers. Okay, the cherubim, of course, have those four faces, man, lion, ox, and eagle. So, if you want to think of it this way, beast, cattle, and bird. So you can begin to look at the order in which the animals came and the, when he created them and look at the cherubim and see the four faces. And you also can look at the seraphim and you can see snake or creeping thing, if you want to think of it that way. One cannot ignore that the animals are having a direct representative relationship to the seraphim and the cherubim. It's highly likely that Satan was both seraphim and cherubim. He is both. The evidence seems to imply that he is both of these. Anyway, the angels watching these animals, they came first, remember? Job 38.7 they're watching these animals being created and they created from the dust of the earth or the minerals of the earth. That would make sense to them. The minerals of the earth, Ezekiel 28.13, Revelation 21.19-21. They would see these minerals being used to make beings and they would go, okay, we know why he's doing this. First we were created. Now the animals are being created out of the minerals that were in the mineral Eden of Ezekiel 28.13. And they could not have thought that this was coincidental. They would make the relationship, the cause and the traceable to a cause, an event or condition that's traceable to a cause. They would do that immediately. God is clearly reproducing angelic features on the earth. So why is he doing that? What is he saying? He's not arbitrary. He's not going, well, I've got no ideas. And there's a cherub and he's got, well, let's see, he's got a cattle, ox, and, uh, and an eagle there. I'll just make those. That's not what he's doing. For today, the order is angel, animals, mankind. What's the obvious question? Why not animals first, and then angels, and then mankind? And it's not that way. It is angels, animals, mankind. It's probably arbitrary, right? Coincidental, just pull it out of the hat. There's no meaning here. 
don't gloss over that. The animals were before. They were created antecedently before man. Or that's a redundancy. Man is in subordination, if you wanted to think of it that way. What is God saying by his creation, specifically with the animals being prior to Adam, as to order? Mankind looks subordinated. Why would he do that? What's he saying there? What do the angels think? How is this related to the test of Ecclesiastes 3.18? Ask nobody. Boy, i got to get going, huh? We know that Adam, the federal head of humanity and animals, was given jurisdiction as it was with Satan. So Adam and Satan have this relationship. Satan, who was the anointed cherub, Ezekiel 28.14, the highest ranking of all the angels. Adam was the anointed uh, of the of the uh, organic earth, the physical organic earth, the highest being of the physical earth. To us mere humans with a penchant towards power and authoritarianism and control, unfortunately, we might think that the king of Eden should have been created first. Instead, Adam was created last, uh, setting aside the woman. For now, from dust, from Adam. There's a difference, right? Adam's from dust, the woman's from Adam. So Adam is created last from dust. Why do you suppose God, Ephesians 5.25, created Adam from the dust after the animals? Why that? And yes, I know that there are those who believe there's a, they've discovered a, a contradiction between Genesis 1.20 through 27 and Genesis 2.18 through 19. Once again, this is a Hebrew language concern. Back, yes, ma'am. Put your mind at rest. You're at 30 minutes. I'm at 30 minutes. I'm okay. I'm doing good. I'm only halfway done, though, unfortunately. Not even halfway. Oops. Okay. This is a Hebrew language concern. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of... Notice what I said. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would name them. Most translations have have omitted had. In other words, the past tense... Had's not you have to put had in your own Bible because it won't be there. Genesis one and Genesis two are written in the Hebrew method of recurrence, as you're all familiar with. If you're not, there's a recording of events. That's what the Hebrews do. It's how they write things. This is how Moses did it, and now they all do it. There's a recording of event, and then he then there's that's followed by an expansion of of the description of the event. There's a, a flood or an avalanche of detail that elucidates that which was written. So if you want to think of it that way, Genesis one was a chronological overview. Genesis two is where all the information is about Genesis one, the important details. Knowing that the Bible is written this way is often everywhere all throughout the Old Testament. Noting, noting, knowing that that happens, that's essential. That's going to stop you from these elementary, forestall these elementary errors in one's conclusion. The principle of recurrence in this example makes it obvious that the Hebrew word yashar would have to be had formed because it's referring to a previous event. But that, that, that such logic does not deter those who are mostly committed to their atheism. And I can't stop atheistic prejudices. Nothing I can do about it. Uh, just It's to the bone marrow now. We're seeing these kinds of things. As, it is 
futile to argue with somebody who has one of those kinds of positions now. Unfortunately, it hasn't always been the case, but I see the hardening in the uh, positions now that will not change. You can see that politically. I mean, you have people who won't live next door to somebody who has a different political view now. And that's astonishing. There's no ability to accept somebody else's opinion in our academic institutions. You must believe what they teach, or you are just you are cast out and isolated. Moving along. Okay, sorry about that. For today, the order of the animals with respect to the angels and to mankind is far more significant than current commentaries of the scripture will report. The preponderance of scholarship today typically ignores and assumes, assigns meaninglessness to the animals being formed, and given the breath of the spirit of life before Adam, who is their federal head, they just disregard it completely. And you better be ready for that. Hopefully all of you out there in the vast internet audience, and that includes you shortwave people, hi hi to you again. I hope you instinctively realize that God is placed into his order here, this animal, I'm sorry, angel, animal, mankind order. There's some astonishing truths here. And, And you will consider and take some time to start looking at what treasures could possibly be there. I think you'll be thrilled to find out what's there. Obviously, I am inferring that the formation order is directly interwoven with the test of Ecclesiastes 3.18. That was a long way to get back to 3.18 of Ecclesiastes. You're trying to figure out what that test is? The animal order will help you. The fact that animals come before man will help you. To repeat in case you missed it, Ecclesiastes 3.18, God is testing all of humanity. Do you know, do you see that our design Our human design is not superior to the animals. We have no advantage in that we and the animals have the same identical breath of the spirit of life. Do you see that? You have to see it. We and the animals all go to the intermediate state. Critical information. The one place. And our bodies return to dust. Do you believe what I just said is true or not? It's binary. Yes or no? True or false? If you answer false, Ecclesiastes 3.18-22, through 22, uh, if you say that's false, we don't go to the same place as animals. We don't have the same spirit of life as animals. We are not the same as is described in 3.18-22. through 22. None of that's true, old, un- unattractive person trying to, trying to put everybody to sleep. You will say to me... <laughs> If you answered false, then uh, you have failed the test. Try again. What is the purpose of the test? Why is it so critical of such importance that mankind know, that God wants mankind to know what is plainly given in Scripture to all those Genesis 120, 121, 124, 128, 130? How come I can recite those so quickly? 715, 722. I just happen to memorize them. There's more, 619, 617. Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 20 is absolutely a repeating of Genesis 120 through 130. Absolutely the same verses. Essentially, uh, Genesis 910, 915, 617, 619. All of those are the same. Obviously, this test, has how one answers and reveals 
what they think reveals a, a determining thought process and attitudes. Consider the implication of the answer no to that question that I asked or false. If you have the no or false answer. Just think about what you're saying. How much, let me put it this way, how much love does God have for his animals? That's where you're at now. How much? How limited is the scope of the resurrecting of Christ? You're back there to that question. Can the spirit of the breath of life, the Ruach Nefash, Shaya, can that be annihilated? Can you annihilate the Ruach Nefesh Shaya? Can you do it? If you say no, then you're saying you can do that. You can annihilate that. That's the breath of the spirit of life of God. His gift of existence. You can, his conscious, his gift of consciousness. You can annihilate it if you answer no or false. Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Revelation 7, 17, Revelation 21, 4, Psalm 37, 4. Look those up. We'll go to Matthew 7, 7 through 11. What man is there among you if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask him? People ask me all the time, Where, what's, I love my dog, my cat, my horse. All kinds of animals. What is the fate of my animal? And people will say to that person, pastor after pastor after pastor, I can't count them all, there's so many of them. They run up front and say, your animal's gone forever. He died, he's gone. It's extinguished. They do it because they don't know what the Bible says and they don't care. That's why. And they like to think that man is not the same with respect to his breath and his body. They like to think that man has got this great superiority and he's the only one resurrected. That's and what they like they to think. Evolution. Huh? And that is accepting that's accepting atheism, yes, because you have annihilationism and annihilationism is atheism. I know. I, I, I'm with you. And when you, when you recognize that God says, how many good things will he give to those who ask him? Does he know that you love your animals? Yes. And so, Matthew 7, 7, 11 becomes the, the beginning of this. How many good things will he give you? How much more? Will he, when you ask for your animal, will he give you a rock? No, he won't. The wiping away of every tear now gets added to this. Every tear that's ever been shed, Revelation 7.17, Revelation 21.4, of the saved, every tear will be wiped away. Every single tear. You go back and think about every tear you have shed. Uh, every time that somebody's animal begins to die, you go ask the veterinarians how that goes. It is one of the most heartbreaking things. We know that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord that he shall give you the desires of your heart. What are you going to ask for? What's the desire of your heart? How about Psalm 36, 6? Your judgments are a great deep. That's what the psalmist says to God. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you save man and beast. And, and that word in the Hebrew, a hundred and 
27 times that word elsewhere is uh, translated save. Now you'll find a translation that says perish. No, you won't find perish. Preserve, you'll find. Sorry, I I completed that with uh, Psalm 40. You'll find preserve, which they say they're preserving them on earth. Well, look around. How much preservation is going on here on earth? And again, those translations that say brought salvation, endowed with salvation, or saved, or safe, or saves, or saved, those are the ones I believe are correct. That's again why you go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, why you go back to Masoretic, why you go back to all of these translations and try to find the context and then you find the connective scriptures and you put it all together and you make a decision as best you can. And I think that that is the process that we should all have. Ultimately, this subject, Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 22, will find Exodus 17, 1 through 7, which I have discussed at length before. Matthew 4, Luke 4, Mark 1. God ends the matter at Exodus 17, 1 through 7 with, Is the Lord among us or not? And that word among is sometimes translated within. Is the Lord within us or not? He says that is the question that Israel asked. Either one is devastating. If you think that Israel is saying, is God, is God even around us? Does he care about us at all? Or is he within us? Both of them are horrible questions to ask of God. And he says so. But if it is within, then the mystery of the indwelling comes to the front right here, uh, right down here. Galatians uh, 2.20, Colossians 1.26-27. Israel asked there at Exodus 17, 1 through 7, is God among us? Is he within us? They're accusing God of being evil there, an evil lying murderer. And that God, why have you brought us, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us, to kill our children and kill our animals with thirst? That's what Israel asked God. Think of the implications of that. Again, he is a lying murderer and evil. I've often modified Israel's indictment of the Lord God in this manner, making it conform to the lie of Satan. I do it because of Matthew 4, Luke 4, and Mark 1, where this entire Exodus 17, 1-7 is repeated. Why is it that you have brought us out of Egypt to annihilate us, our children and our animals? And God gives them instead, he gives them living water from the smote rock. And that smote rock, as you know, is Christ, 1 Corinthians 10.4. And who drank? All the people of Israel drank. And who else drank there? Numbers 20.11. The animals. God does not annihilate. Nothing with the breath of the spirit of life can cease to exist. I have a message say here to read Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. I wish I could remember why I wrote that. 6.16. Look at me find it as a professional. You shall not test the Lord your God as you tested him in Massa, which is Exodus 17, 1-7. Do not ever, do not ever accuse God of being an evil, lying, annihilating murderer. Don't do it. If you think animals are being annihilated, what are you doing? If you, if you teach that or preach that, then you are Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Look at Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not do this. 
Do not have this thought. Do not accuse Christ of being unwilling or unable to save from death any of those who have the Ruach Nefesh Shaya. And, and that is the issue, unwilling or unable. Which do you choose? Because that's your choice. It dims the choices. The answer is obviously neither. God is not evil. He has no evil thoughts. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, Psalm 25, 8 through 9. Which, of course, that's the test of Ecclesiastes 3.18. With the animals, it's the central piece of evidence I just lost. Did I run out of oofum scoopum here? Yes, I'm dead. I thought we changed that just now. No, we changed the recorder. Oh, we changed the recorder? Okay. I'll give this to you. You can unmute the other one while I'm waiting for you. Mm-hmm. This is why we have this backup system. Test, test, test. Okay. So while Terry's trying to fix us, uh, then we'll see if I can make this happen. Because I'll run out of time if I don't. This is the Ecclesiastes test, 3.18. Is that enough, enough? You want to raise that volume a little bit there? Test, test, test. Let me pull it forward. Okay, here we go. There, that sounds better. This is the test of Ecclesiastes 3.18, with the animals as the central piece to this test. In the past of my so-called religious career, whenever confronted by somebody who insisted that God extinguished animals forever, I always ask this question that I just gave you. Is it your view, I say to them, that God is unable to do it, or is he unwilling to resurrect his animals? That's what I ask them. Which one is it? And usually they answer, God is both unwilling and unable. In other words, they believe he created temporal beings whose purpose is to suffer and die and then cessation. And that is atheism. Okay, you got me going here? And that's atheism. It's evolutionary philosophy. Anytime you're agreeing agreeing with evolutionists with respect to God, you're in the wrong place. Did you turn it off? You'll squeal. Yes, I turned it off. Okay. Oops, we lost my little clamp. Did we? Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. I think it's a production nightmare. <laughs> Did you find it? There it is. It's red. No, that's not it. You were close. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, continue. Back to this. Yeah, I've got some here. Oh, it's on the... It's, it's hanging there. It's right here, down here. Oh, there it is. Well, you you did not lose it. Okay. <laughs> You're at 47 minutes. Okay, I've got to hustle, huh? Test, test, test. Pull this back. Okay, if you find yourself agreeing with the evolutionary atheist, my goodness, be, be, be afraid. What are you thinking? The unbelievers, why would you ever assume that they have any position that's possible? They don't. Do not answer that God is both unwilling and unable. In other words, he did not do this. In addition, the people that answer this way, there's, there's, they say this. There's so many animals that have lived and died, and I've heard it from every pastor probably I've ever talked to about this subject. I, I, I cannot find one that doesn't have this view. I've never met one. Now, some of you guys have, and that's wonderful. But in my so-called career, uh, no. I haven't met somebody yet that has the right view here. 
They say that there are so many animals that have lived and died that it's now impossible for God to gather all of them up. Yeah, that's what they tell me. And and you you might you might quickly leap or conclude that I'm putting up a straw man here. And this isn't a reflection of reality, that this isn't what's in the church. And I'm saying to you, no, it's systemic. No one could really hold this view, you're going to think. Well, they do. And, and I will say they recognize um, that they recognize quite soon when I'm talking to them upon cross-examination that the unable position is tenuous. You've got to be kidding, right? Omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, and the fact that there are at least... How many galaxies are there? There's 200 billion galaxies. Okay? And they have 1 billion trillion stars in those galaxies. That's 1 times 10 to the 21st power. And, and, and electrons. How many electrons do I have in the universe? 10 to the 86th power. Don't get me started on electrons. And these estimates are confined to what we call the observable universe. Humanity, in other words, what we can what we can discover with our telescopes and whatever means we have. Humanity has no idea of the actual size of the universe, the creation. With that said, God can keep track of every animal that has lived and died, Matthew 10, 29, and he does. Obvious question. Why does God know of every sparrow, every bird that falls dead to the ground? Why does he know that? Because he says he does. He knows. He sees them die. Nothing dies without his knowledge. Why? Why does he just flick it off and go, well, I'm not going to know about it. Okay, obviously we got omniscience, omnipresence. But the key to this whole thing, Ecclesiastes 3.18-22, through 22, is omnibenevolence. The best answer is omnibenevolence. Goodness. Anyway, before I start ranting, hopefully you've arrived at the obvious. He's absolutely able to resurrect every animal and every human. And he can do that. That's what he said. Do you believe him or not? And so they're going to retreat. They say, okay, you're right. He could do it. I give up there. But uh, he's not willing to do it. That's where they go. God, he's got other plans. So he doesn't want to do it. God made them. God, God sees his ruach nefesh shaya animals as disposable, as worthless. What are the implications to the human condition then? Because we're the same with respect to the Ruach Nefesh Shaya and, and the death of the body. May I suggest that this, if this is your position, you contemplate the implications as to what you are saying about the character of the loving God, 1 John 4, 8, Jeremiah 29, 11, 1 John 3, 1, Psalm 86, 15, 136, 26, Isaiah 54, 10, Zephaniah 3, 17. The unwilling position is in conflict with it directly, absolutely opposes what God says about himself. Do you believe him? Do you you believe him? That's John 11.25. Do you believe this? Or do you believe what Satan says about God? Because that's really where you are. One says he's evil. The other one says I am not ever evil. I have no thought like that at all. There's nothing in me that is this way. 
So try, try your best not to put evolutionary philosophy, atheism, secessionism, or cessationism, hopelessness, purposelessness, doom, despairing. Try not to put that into God. He says it's not there. Okay, where else can we go to find evidences in Scripture for the resurrection of the Ruach, Nefesh, Shaya animals? How am I doing, Terry? Give me, give me a thought. Fifty-three. Fifty-three. Okay. Okay. Revelation. Where I want to go is Revelation 21, 14 through 16. Do I have time? Let me see. I do. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with a reed. Twelve thousand furlongs. Its length, its breadth, its height are equal. There you go. Case closed. The new city of Jerusalem, the city of those resurrected to life, is 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles high. Same thing that I, some teach that it's a, a pyramid, and I disagree. I see the description as representing a cube. That's how it's described as I see. In any event, God has a city, many mansions, John 14, 2, that is 500 miles high. Consider the current status of the earth, the atmospheric levels. We have the troposphere, the stratosphere, the mesosphere, the thermosphere, the ionosphere, and the exosphere. Okay? 1,500 miles extends into the exosphere. Obviously, breathing would be difficult. Not to mention gravity. Which is why most theologians have described the new city of Jerusalem, and I agree with these, as an enclosed structure. You'll see it as an enclosed structure resting on the earth. As you know, I propose that many mansions is not row houses. Duh. God does not think like us, Isaiah 55, 8. His ways are not our ways. He's not going to construct a condominium project. Please, please stop. Can you think outside the box? How about that for a metaphor that doesn't fit? Why is this structure, why, why, is, why is this structure with its own light, that's the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ provides the light for all the city, Revelation 21, 22 through 22, 5. And I'm going to assume that the one who is the breath of life and who is light itself also can replicate our atmosphere as it is. Breathing right now is uh, problematic above four miles. Compressed air is necessary. Why is this city 1,500 miles high? Most theologians say it's just one, you get the ground area, and then you got 1,500 miles of empty space. Do you think that's what God did? Empty space? He likes to create. Granting that the God of creation has solved light, and he solved breathing, and he solved gravity, and he solved water, Revelation 22, 1. Why is it so high? Well, the reason is obvious. Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 22. Case solved. It's over. Jury has spoken now. We can close the court. Assuming, for example, a total of five miles of soil and oxygen, or two and a half of soil, two and a half of oxygen. Miles. 1,500 miles high would allow for 300 stories. Each one consisting of 2,225,000 square miles. Consider that 2,225,000 square miles is the cumulative square miles of Alaska, Texas, California, Montana, and 75% of India. That's how many square miles that is. And there's 300 of them, if you give me my five miles. And that's on one mansion. One mansion, I've got California, I'm sorry, Alaska, Texas, California, Montana, and 75% of India. That's one mansion. 
And I got 300 of them. You should realize now what God's doing and why he's doing it. With 300 mansions in the total land area of the New Jerusalem, that is 675 million square miles in this city. Or three and a half times greater than the Earth's surface square mileage, including the oceans, or 12 times the current land surface of the Earth, including the 24% that is mountains and the 33% that is desert. This new city of Jerusalem has 27 times the habitable land of the earth. As you know, the new city of Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 4, 1 through 4, descends from heaven and rests on the earth. So I still have the earth. Thank you. The restored earth, there's both of them. So I've got this new city for 675 million square miles and I still have the earth. And it's got no deserts and it's got no mountains. And it doesn't have any oceans. Obviously, he intends. He is making room, isn't he? He's making room, if, if I'm right. Duh. Each mansion has a unique feature or features with respect to ecological systems, vegetation, and the occupants. The river of life goes through all of it. I believe that's the case. The redeemed, those who are covered by the blood of Christ, live in this city. And they have no tears. So who else lives in the city? The only way this can be done, the only way you can wipe away every tear, the only way, resurrection. The desires of your heart and resurrection will be the same thing. Why does this city have this volume? Because the character of God is being revealed here, which solves the test of Ecclesiastes 3.18. Next week, Ecclesiastes 3.22. I have to keep going. Oh, okay, let's... You've got to remind me of this because there's no music people. I can't remember without the music people parading in order, height uh, being the definitive uh, order. Heavenly Father, we just, we just don't know what to say. We know that you will do what is good, even though the times here are so horribly sad. We have, only, we have no choice but to believe you will do what is good. That is the only solution. Please come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Barely beat the train.